All right, Roberta, time to say something witty. Can I say it? Can I say it? Can I say it? Yeah. Policy pod! <laughs> <laughs> Policy pod! <laughs> Hello, welcome back to Center Ed Teaching, and as Roberta has indicated, we are going to dive deep and heavy into proposed policy at the federal level and the state level and what that means going forward. Um, so as you can tell by Roberta's voice, I'm joined by Roberta. Hello. Wow, you got like your own drum roll. Cool. <laughs> and Faith is back with us this it. week. Hello. You have to like bring your own like uh, support system that's when right. you come. That's right. Because if <laughs> so, you like, don't, if you, if you want people to cheer for you, you just have to like <sighs> cheer for you. It's Faith. <sighs> so there's a lot of lightheartedness because the pre-conversation was not the most uplifting. So. We're, we're trying to keep enthusiasm and happiness before we get um, into these details. So before we jump right in, just a quick reminder, if you like what you're hearing on the podcast, make sure to subscribe, like, and review um, wherever you get your podcast. But then too, if you want to follow up with some of these resources or use them uh, in the classroom, outside of the classroom, make sure to go to our website, tc.columbia.edu. So today what we're going to talk about is the proposed educational budget by the Trump-DeVos tandem, um, their rollback of civil rights protections in education, um, changes in higher ed funding, and then tie this all together by talking about ESSA, which if you're unsure what ESSA is or need a quick recap, you can go back into our podcasts of yore and listen to the age of yore. <laughs> and listen to um, us break down ESSA and what that is. But for a quick fill in, ESSA is the um, reauthorization of No Child Left Behind, um, Race to the Top, which is the uh, federal policy around education for how states can get federal funding dollars um, through testing, which has been. Uh, reverted back to states determining uh, what tests are used, what the metrics are, as opposed to the federal government. Um, so to get into kind of the DeVos-Trump agenda, the, the overarching goal for them is to reduce the role of the federal government in education. And so a couple of quotes from Betsy DeVos, um, she says, it's time for us to break out of the confines of the federal government's arcane approach to education. Um, and she also said Washington has been in the driver's seat for over 50 years with very little to show for its efforts. Um, and finally saying the notion that spending more money is going to bring about different results is ill-placed and ill-advised. So kind of in summation, what she is arguing is that the federal government has done too much in education and it's been unsuccessful and now it's time to remove the federal government. Um, so context for this, because I think if we're going to talk about these proposed policies and the implications, it's also fair to mention that a lot of times these proposed budgets from the White House don't actually mean an enactment of policy, and oftentimes um, they're dead on arrival. However, I think what we've seen over the past two months with special elections is that you have Republicans who are continually voted into office that are in support of this agenda, which seems to indicate that even if not everything DeVos and Trump um, have proposed will be accepted, um, that something along those lines, a diminishing role of the federal government is going to happen, just a matter of how much it's going to diminish, um, I think is the real question. And, and I think when we're talking about a diminished role, we're not talking necessarily about the diminishing expectations or diminishing the regulations on schools or mm. diminishing how schools will be held accountable, I think we're just talking about diminishing support. And, fin mm. and by support, I mean financial support, right? Because mm. they're not going to do away with with state evaluations or with expectations mm -hmm. that, that students are, are actually fully educated. Um, it's not sort of a... It, unless unless the... Um, what was the, the comment? The... Um, the arcane approach to education mm -hmm. means means the arcane approach of funding education, yeah. right? Yeah. So I'm not sure where that comment comes from, but or like what her context was when she said that. But it it seems to me that all of the expectations on states and schools will be in place. They will just be receiving less funding for them. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I think just one quick follow up to that too, because 
the arcane use actually gets me because as she states in one of the other quotes, you didn't have federal funding in education until, what was it, 1965 when the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which is now Mm -hmm. uh, the Every Student Succeeds Act, or ESSA, um, brought federal dollars in. So it's also interesting to call that arcane when it's 50-some years old. And and the the purpose of that legislation was about leveling the playing field after, Mm -hmm. you know, 200 years of slavery and segregation in our schools. So the, the federal government is trying to step in to make sure that all schools are providing an equal opportunity for education in their uh, in their states. And so then to roll back that either we either we think that we have arrived and that all schools and all mm-hmm. students are already mm-hmm. being supported like the the the, the playing field is, has been leveled mm-hmm. and so it's arcane to continue to fund it in this way. Um, or, or there's some other logic to to why uh, why schools don't need the same kind of funding. And really, when we're talking about federal funding, and Matt, I learned this from you, um, <coughs> uh, we're talking about funding that is not just that's it's not paying for the janitor, it's mm-hmm. not paying for the building necessarily. Federal funding, federal dollars goes to support. Um, the poor and the needy mm-hmm. and the disenfranchised whose districts cannot afford to support the needs that they have. I, Roberta, I'm so glad with everything that you said because I think for some listeners, as we go through these policy things, they may see them as separate issues, but I think it mm-hmm. all gets back that the idea of this legislation was to promote equality for everyone. And so thinking through all these changes through that lens, I think you can see how they kind of come together. And. I think just to put a finer point on it or maybe to hammer it home, I'm sure if I'm <laughs> yeah, holding a pen yeah. or a hammer here, but the, 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 re- the pulling back of the no child left behind expectations that Obama did when he brought ESSA to the forefront in mm-hmm. 2015, that actually diminished the, the role that the federal government was playing in holding individual schools mm-hmm. and counties and cities and states accountable for mandate for meeting a particular metric mandate that was like a lot of government involvement a lot of federal government involvement Mm -hmm. around what you should do and how you should do it and the es bringing um, the every student succeeds act back uh to the law of the land so to speak actually most of the esa just says like the federal government cannot do this the federal government cannot Mm -hmm. do that Mm -hmm. the federal government cannot do this the federal all of these things that no child left behind did mm-hmm. in, in enacting control over states, um, ESSA releases all of that control back to this, the responsibility of the states. Mm-hmm. Um, with and, and it had the promise of continued funding for that. So now you get to make your own decisions. And also, we're going to support you yeah. when you're supporting your neediest students. And this um, version is... Right, we're still not going to be involved, <laughs> um, but now actually we're going to withdraw the financial support that has been there to level that playing field and support those uh, needy students. Um, and so talking about that financial support, I think it's also helpful to understand the context for what that financial support actually looks like. So in New York State, which is representative of many states, and while the numbers might not be exact in other states, is a pretty close approximation. So in New York State, 54.5% of school funding comes from local taxes. 41.4% comes from the state, and this is taxes, lottery, or other appropriations um, that they may put towards education. So between local and state funding, that compromises 95% of school funding. Only 4.2% actually comes from the federal appropriation to states. So what that money that comes from the federal government, what does it do, right? Roberta already alluded to it. You have Title I in the Elementary Secondary Education Act, or ESSA, which gives benefits to those who are in poverty and from lower-income families, right? It gives money to those schools to boost resources, whether that's te- textbooks, teacher salary, something to help uh, lift up and increase social mobility. Um, under Title VI of that same act, there's money for bilingual education programs. So the federal government says it's important that we teach all students, even those whose English is not their first language, and provide money for there. Um, Also in the 1970s, there was the Disabilities Education Act, which provides federal funding to support materials and instructors for students with special needs. So the majority of federal funding to schools, that's where the money goes, right? And so that's what we're talking about cutting, even though it's already a sliver of the budget. So wait, if it go ahead. Well, it, it's interesting because when uh, on the, uh, 
when we're first talking about the sliver of the budget, I go, oh, well, if it's a sliver of the budget, then, you know, what does that really mean then? If mm-hmm. most, I guess still have can we just can we just like so tighten our belt, tighten our belt, and and deal without the four point two percent? Yeah, and then when but when you look and see the focus of that, most of that money comes through Title One, Title Six. Then it seems to me directly targeted at the neediest. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think something yeah. else to to build on that is if you live in a lower income area, oftentimes the value of homes is lower. Mm-hmm. So even if you're taxed at the same rate yeah. as maybe a wealthy suburb, the actual money that you're putting into your schools is smaller um, because it's a smaller tax base. I don't know if that makes sense just listening. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I think what you're saying is like, so let's say everybody's, um, I'm not an economist, <laughs> but we're just going to pretend and I'll use round numbers for, my, for my own self, right? So like, let's say everyone's taxed at, their property taxes tax at, you know, 15%. That's mm-hmm. not a round number. This 20%. This is going to be fun. This is okay. going to be fun. <laughs> All right, go. 20%. Okay, and, and, and I pay, you know, uh, $100 on my taxes. That's not a real thing, but I'm mm-hmm. just keeping the math simple. So I'm going to pay 20%, and now my 20% is going to be 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. But somebody who's paying $100,000 is going to be paying $20,000 into exactly. their schools. Yeah. So while yeah. we're both paying 20%, my $200 is going to fund the schools. And next door in the neighborhood across the street right. or across right. the train tracks, they're getting $20,000 that are mm-hmm. going pumped into their school times however many people are property owners. Mm-hmm. Someone really should rethink this system. However... <laughs> Yeah. I, I think that that's such an important thing um, to note um, that partly it's coming through property tax and um, but also that when you those though that that 96 percent of funding is supporting all of the things that schools and districts mm-hmm. need to be up and running mm-hmm. um, that they're not able to bridge the gap around our neediest students right. and mm-hmm. the kinds of right. um, challenges that they're coming in with the kinds of trauma they're coming in with the, uh, we talked last week about the summer learning yeah. um, oppor- op- opportunity gap or the yeah. learning gap. Um, and so we recognize that as students get older and older, their academic um, opportunities become farther and farther apart and they need more and more and more support as they yeah. get older and therefore schools need more and more support and those all become um, this sounds like a negative way to say it, but like a drain on the resources. Mm-hmm. And so they need additional funding beyond what it sort of minimally takes to run their schools in order to provide, you know, a, a fair amount of services. And I can tell you schools who are receiving these services, they say we still need more. Like mm-hmm. this is not sufficient yeah. for us to really meet the needs of the community. So I, I had the same thought, Faith. 4.2% does not seem like it's that big of a deal. But then when we look at where that 4.2% is coming from... Right. It's right, a disproportionate right. impact. It, it, that's right. It like, my 4.2% of my body is my hand. But yeah. if I lose my hand, I've mm-hmm. lost a lot. Yeah. 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 No, How's I, that for a grim uh, <laughs> analogy? Yeah, it's only actually going to get brighter from here. Um, All right. So that's kind you know, of the good. overview of that. And so let's talk specifically um, about these cuts. So there's an estimated $10.6 billion that will be cut in education. It's going to all be cut from testing, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, negative. Oh. So we have $1.2 billion cut from after-school programs, $2.1 billion for teacher training and class size reduction, $15 million um, that are provided for child care for low-income parents in college. So uh, maybe you're 22 and you're going back to school, you have a child... Uh, you need to go to class, but you can't take your child. There's a program that pays for that. That's losing $15 million. Uh, $27 million in arts education. Uh, $12 million for programs for gifted students. Um, this next one really troubles me. $12 million for Special Olympics education programs. Um, interestingly, the Trump-DeVos agenda has promoted technical education, but that part of the education budget would also lose $168 million. Um, adult basic literacy instruction, which you'll see um, either in schools or at remote location for people trying to get their GED or going back to school, will lose $96 million. Uh, Promised neighborhoods, which were started by um, Barack Obama, um, I think with Race to the Top, but it might have been uh, ESSA, which is to make schools more like community centers and struggling neighborhoods to help uplift the whole community and not just the students that are in them. In addition, um, Cuts would be made to schools and Medicaid. 
um, which $4 billion worth of that fund to provide medical care assistance to special needs students and poor students, um, including vision screening and speech therapy, uh, would be cut. And so we've talked a lot about the students with uh, the most financial needs really being affected by this, but 75% of all students in the country receive some kind of funding through Medicaid um, in their school to service their disability. So that funding is being cut by $4 billion. Um, God, this is getting really hard to get through. Um, So amidst all these cuts, there's going to be an increase in spending, um, about $400 million to expand charter schools and vouchers for private and religious schools. So just a real quick uh, delineation, charter schools are public schools, except not all the funding comes um, from the public sector. There is also funding that can be received through donations um, and the private sector with reduced public funding. And then vouchers are saying, okay, between the state and federal government, your student gets X amount of dollars. That X amount of dollars is going to follow your student to wherever you want to send that student, whether it's a private school, um, a parochial school, what have you. Um, And we're going to actually jump back into that one in a little bit. Um, Another billion dollar increase to push public schools to adopt choice friendly policies. So in other words, saying that, okay, you have a school district, we want to promote choice. If you do these particular moves or buy for these particular grants, there's funding with that to make it uh, more choice centric. Um, And kind of a weird turn, the new law um, that would be in this proposed budget would allow states to use up to 7% of Title I money for school improvement. Um, most of that would be used for buildings. So even though Title I is meant for students who are in poverty, essentially that money would be distributed across the state for school repairs, and then the remaining 93% would be appropriated um, to the schools that Title I traditionally goes to. So in a way, redistributing tax dollars to go to all districts um, away from lower income districts. So that's, go ahead, Faith, you were about to say something. I'm just taking a deep <laughs> breath to try and, <clears throat> yeah. that's a lot of, it's a lot of feelings. I, I, I was thinking, going back to the, the quote from earlier um, from DeVos about the notion that spending more money is going to bring about different results is ill-placed and ill-advised. And I, and I know, and I know, that I know that, I know that um, like, as I'm thinking of it, I mean, my, I'm definitely thinking and picturing the students that this is going to affect and the teachers this is going to affect. And, and wondering, what are they going to do? Like, um, but I can go back to that quote and say, yeah, I can get on board with more money doesn't equal more. You have to manage the money. You have to, um, you know, spend it wisely. But again, when, when thinking about this money being taken directly away from those who need it the most, that's what is so troubling. I think you mentioned about the Special Olympics mm-hmm. cut. It just, it makes you wonder why Mm -hmm. that would be Mm -hmm. cut. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that also should be said in context before we get more um, into the nitty gritty of some of this is that uh, Congress has actually already approved the same amount of funding that schools had last year. So these cuts actually don't need to happen for the education budget to be approved. Um, But one Mm -hmm. thing that I think is helpful to focus on is Despite all these cuts, the increasing to expand charter schools and vouchers. Um, Roberta, Faith, why this movement? What does that movement mean for school districts? What, what, what is the thinking here? Well, I can, I'm sorry, I can't answer that question yet because I'm just going back to this quote about spending more money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the quote, the notion that spending more money is going to bring about different results is ill-placed and ill-advised. Betsy DeVos said that? She did. Betsy DeVos, who's before getting this job, gave over $139 million to fund education programs that mm-hmm. she was interested mm-hmm. in. Right. Because she believed she... that funding for education was important and essential mm-hmm. for students to have a proper education. I, I, I'm just, 
I just have to like you have to take the whole. I'm trying to, to like understand to... understand that, and uh, and I was just thinking about there was a an article. I think she said, yeah, I gave that money, and I did expect to see a return on my investment. Mm-hmm. It's an investment, mm-hmm. and I expected to receive mm-hmm. it was to see a return on that investment in the form of like advances made in the schools that I that I donated to mm-hmm. or the scholarships that I that I gave to. So I'm I guess I'm trying I'm trying to understand why. As a private citizen, giving money what is like the thing to do and the thing that made her money qualify made to, to yeah. do this job. And mm-hmm. now that she's in the job of actually protecting our schools, all of a sudden money actually doesn't really matter. So let's go ahead and take it away. And I think my big question will be, what are they going to do with this $10 million? $10 million. Okay, and, $10 and, million dollars but, that, that and are And I'll say that to me directly comes back around to what Matt just asked because I think because it's mm-hmm. choice. She had the choice to do it. She could do it. It was like she could do that with the money that she had, right? And also charters because choice. Because if I have the if I have what I need to do this, then I'm going to do it. And I know that what I think of right away and I'm jumping the gun on it, but right away is um those who do not have the choice. They're the ones that get affected. Yeah, well, so I think you bring up an excellent point, Faith, and there's a great book if you have time to read it. Um, it's called James Ryan, Five Miles Away, World Apart. James Ryan is now the dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And what he talks about is in the 70s, you see this push um, for this line to save the cities and spare the suburbs. Because let's be honest, when Betsy DeVos is talking about school choice, she's not talking about Scarsdale. She's not talking about schools in Long Island, right? Mm -hmm. She's talking about schools that are traditionally lower performing. And Mm -hmm. so allowing a market-based approach for schools to vie for competition uh, um, with students and quote-unquote give parents the choice to choose their school. However, parents being able to maybe take their kid from one district to another isn't always feasible, even with a voucher for, for the money to do that. And so I think... While the ideology that she's pushing, you could argue, maybe has some coherence, in actuality, historically speaking, we've actually seen it not work well. Um, We can post some articles. There's been a lot written about the schools that Betsy DeVos invested in, right? And a lot of these were Detroit schools, which she didn't send her students to. Um, She was not necessarily personally involved in, right? She didn't live in Detroit, but it's this idea that we're going to change the community schools of where we don't live and protect what we have. Um, I don't know. That might be a little too attacking for me to say, but I, but I do think it, it's what's going on. It's, I would say without any other understanding, it's troubling yeah. to see such a turn of values around the importance and the, the role that funding plays in supporting education. Mm-hmm. And it's troubling to think that we're going to take $10 billion away from kids who really need it um, to serve other purposes when there isn't any clear indication that it has not been effective or that there is another plan that is more effective. So to come back to your question, I think that's around charter schools. Mm-hmm. Can you ask your question again? Because I was a little distracted the first time you asked <laughs> yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. I um, was like, wait, what? Wow. Um, but now I'm ready and yeah. focused because I processed a little bit and um, I'm ready to... <laughs> Why, with all these cuts, increase spending for charter schools and, and for vouchers? Um, why target that approach? Yeah, because now those schools are going to be really crappy, so you need to have a new... No, okay. Yeah. So the, the charter school and the public school debate is very, very serious, and it's really tapping into the comments that you just made, which is when in when in districts where there are not an abundance of schools, we can't really say this, charter schools are still a huge issue in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, they're very, very serious in more uh, suburban or more rural areas um, or, or, or where you have sprawling towns mm-hmm. because oftentimes there are like four schools in your district. There are seven schools mm-hmm. in your district and you just go to that school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. there is not a, a huge amount of choice or options. So if you don't like that school or if you have a problem with that school or you don't adhere to the philosophy of that school, you don't necessarily have a lot of other choices. Mm-hmm. Now, one choice would be to you know, participate in local action and join your uh, school board or speak to your school board about, you know, creating more schools or more spaces for diverse schools. But 
that's the challenge that I think a lot of um, voters are having is what if I don't like my school I want to have the option to send my child to a charter school what if the schools in my neighborhood are bad schools I want to have um, the option to send my child to a charter school charter schools are considered to be public schools um, because they do receive some pu public money mm -hmm. they are often though um, they're sort of like friends with benefits, right? <laughs> like they 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 receive uh, public money, um, but they have a separate governing board, so they don't follow the same rules or the same guidelines or the same policies that other public schools have to. Their teachers don't need to be rated on the same um, evaluation metric. They don't receive necessarily the same funding. They don't necessarily receive the same restrictions on their funding. They do answer typically to a board of trustees, um, and that board of trustees is associated with the charter or their mm -hmm. mission, um, which typically has a belief system about uh, a more nuanced or specific way that they think that uh, the, the theory of action, if we want to recall mm -hmm. our, mm -hmm. our quality review conversations, so they have a clear theory of action, and that's aligned with some principles that they establish in the charter and then are overseen by a board of directors similar to uh, a private school. So you have this sort of charter school as a hybrid of the public school receiving public dollars, but the private but private entities and private interests that are at play there. And the idea here is using sort of the capitalistic free market society that if you have um, groups of people or businesses or uh, philanthropists who are interested in donating money and have a view for education, then we'll give them the students and we'll give them some public support and they can use that interest and see if they could find a better way. And charter schools have long um, pr promoted themselves as being able to educate um, uh, better and faster and with a higher success rate than public schools. And so the sort of the debate rings on. Um, public school advocates are going to say that charter schools pull uh, highly qualified or um, on uh, on track students mm -hmm. out of the public system, um, leaving them with more students who are struggling, and that is going to account for not only the difference in performance between charter schools and public schools, but also um, creates a, a even more challenges for public schools because they don't have um, a heterogeneous um, academic community to really right. support the learning. Mm -hmm. um, public schools also will say that charter schools, um, because they get to choose, pick and choose their student population, they get to pick and choose their enrollment, um, then we'll sort of select the best of the best and, and leave the rest. And so then when you compare them at the end, uh, it's, it's not quite the same. Yeah, and, and I think... There is some truth to that, but I do also think there are charter schools that are taking um, all students and working with that. There is some nuance in the process, but I think the point to take away, regardless of where you come down on charter schools versus traditional public schools, is if you want to, quote-unquote, promote innovation um, in education with charter schools, there's no reason that you could not increase educational spending overall with more money for charter schools without taking money away mm. um, from yeah. traditional public schools. But that, but that's not the debate. It's putting schools in competition when the real mission should be what is the best way that we can educate children and let's do that. And if we have to spend more money, because as Roberta said, it's an investment. Um, I, I don't know, that's just a little bow that I guess I'll put on that uplifting section. Um, well, and I guess that then that makes me think about the, I mean, Roberta did a really good job talking about like the different perspectives mm -hmm. if you're, you know, in a public school, if you're in a charter school. And then I think about who we're thinking about. Are we thinking about our children as mm -hmm. in like our children, our community um, large, like the whole United States. And then of course we come down to like smaller and smaller state communities and, and smaller than that. Um, and or are, are we thinking about my children mm. now that I, and I've definitely seen that where, um, where even like a public school teacher, yes, I'm committed. Yes. I'm staying in this school. This is, a, it's a tough place to be. Maybe they, um, you know, large class sizes and just, um, not enough funding. And, and then when people have their own children determining, do I keep my child in a public school that mm -hmm. I'm committed to? this district or however it's going to work in each setting um or do i say no it, I, I i have the opportunity i have the option so i'm going private school i'm going and and i think that's a big question about 
people that are making policy, how are they thinking about it? Mm-hmm. Our children, my children, your children, and people, and and is competition a way to say, okay, good, if we get them sort of competing, mm-hmm. then um, everything will get better. I know that that's the idea, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering about, like, but what about the kids that can't, they just do not have options like that, even to get a bus to go wherever it is that they need to go. Well, for and, like a charter school. and I mean, I thought we were ending that section, Faith, but now you got me all riled <laughs> up because you can't talk about schools and school choice without talking about housing, right? Because school choice has been exercised for decades when your parents determine where they want to live mm-hmm. because they'll live in a place thinking about schools, about where they can send you, but some people don't have the economic mobility to move to those neighborhoods, not to mention the long history of discrimination in real estate um, Mm -hmm. that keeps communities segregated. And so I think like, oh, you want to talk about school choice policy? Let's also talk about expanding housing opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, Sorry, I got to call It's It's all linked. It's all like linked by all these threats. I think the thing that's interesting is that we can we keep having the discussion and the debate and and it and it it rests on a couple of assumptions mm-hmm. um one of the assumptions is that it's competition that's going to make schools better mm-hmm. uh, lots of people think this that if schools are competing for the better scores and they're going to do better mm-hmm. I, I think this is a really huge assumption because it assumes that school leaders teachers district officials people who are professionals in this industry know what to do Mm-hmm. And are choosing not to do it because they're lazy, because they're not motivated mm-hmm. enough. Yeah. And, and the reality of it is, actually, people don't know what to do. Because and that, it's hard. Because it's, it's really hard. hard because it's, it's like hard. one of the hardest, most complex jobs. Because every time you peel one layer back, you see 50 more layers that mm-hmm. you've got to peel back. Um, because you're taking on the responsibility of every other stakeholder in the community to mm-hmm. educate the children mm-hmm. of, the, of, right. of, of a generation. Um, so the idea that like, oh, well, if, if people just had a couple more incentives or if there are a few more sticks that were sort of like uh, comp- helping people to compete, if you put their job at risk, then th- then they'll do mm-hmm. what they then they'll do a good job. But the reality of it is none of those are actually solutions based. What we actually need is more is increased collaboration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what we need right. is increased collaboration and support for research in the field to help us to understand what are the best practices, what are the criteria for success and how do we help people to gain those skills in a fast-paced way? We don't have that right now. Um, the second thing that it assumes is that charter schools do perform better, mm-hmm. on average, than public schools. And that, in fact, is actually also not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, a, in a 2013 study, so over five years ago, this was studied um, in mass, a scientific research study that came out and said they matched up student-to-student student, um, twins so the exact same student with the like the exact same type of student mm-hmm. who went to school at a charter school, the same student, same demographics, mm-hmm. same if they were special ed, they were special ed. If they were general ed, they were general ed. Mm-hmm. If they were on level, they were on level. If they were mm-hmm. off level, they were off level. So they matched up these twins and they followed them, some who went to charter schools and some who went to public schools. And of all of the schools that they studied, only 17% of charter schools performed better than their public school counterpart counterparts, mm-hmm. which means that and 37%, sorry, 37% did worse. Mm-hmm. So yeah. so here we have this assumption that that given all of their uh, given all of their their increased resources, their ability to handpick students, their ability to kick kids out of their schools, that they're going to do better. And we keep believing that this we keep believing in this false narrative mm-hmm. that charter schools automatically are going to perform better than their public school counterparts. And actually we have data that says actually that's not true at all. And in fact, 37% of them perform worse than they would have had they continued in their public school. And I think that, that this inability to, to withdraw or remove ourselves from these assumptions, mm-hmm. or these sort of like preconceived notions that we have about it, really limit our, our, our dialogue. They mm-hmm. really limit our ability to sort of like get, get, get out of the weeds um, and, and move from more of the abstract to, to concrete solutions. Yeah, and just to, I don't think this is like a counterpoint, but also to put that like another way to tie back to a point that I made earlier. So 17% did better in a charter school. Great. There's some charter schools that are mm-hmm. doing great things. Like, mm-hmm. let's continue to fund them and replicate That's that. Right. Congratulations. But then there's also public schools that performed better. Yep. So why aren't we putting the same amount right. of resources yeah. yes. um, to create innovation there? Like, there's no one perfect school model. That's right. Yeah. And so the more that we can develop, 
I think that's like better for kids. Like this shouldn't be a political issue about, yeah. Ooh, I believe in a market-based system or mm-hmm. I believe everything, mm-hmm. uh, should be run by the government, but a system. Okay. Where can we get the most growth yeah. for students and improvement for students? Yeah. Okay. I'll save all my other charter school comments. See, you shouldn't ask those questions. I'll save them for our charter school episode because I have a lot more to say about this. Okay, so... So, to, you know, to be continued. <laughs> so, moving forward now... Um, What's provo- this about again? <laughs> <laughs> providing, you know, a student gets through and graduates high school, the proposed uh, Trump, De- Trump DeVos agenda... Um, poses some other problems because there are also cuts to federal assistance to college-going students. So funding for college work-study programs would be cut in half. So for those of you who don't know, work-study is for students who are struggling to um, afford the cost of an education, even at a state institution, and they can work 15 to 20 hours a week at the institution, and the f- funding from the federal government pays that paltry salary, which is usually minimum wage, or actually there's stipulations within work-study that it can be below minimum wage. Um, it's also going to eliminate more than $700 million in Perkins loans for disadvantaged students. Um, so I can speak to this personally because I needed Perkins loans to pay for my schooling, and what these are are subsidized loans that have incredibly low interest rates and are very, what's the word I'm looking for, um, deferments. Right, so that you don't have to start paying until you've graduated. I think it's from like one or two years, and that you're working, and you can pay them back slowly. And if you work in um, the public sector, uh, you can get uh, parts of that loan forgiven each year up to five years. Um, so there's small loans with small interest rates that are really easy to pay back for students. Um, cutting four hundred ninety million dollars. Um, in subsidized loans and ending the subsidized loan program. So once again, speaking from experience, so you have to take a loan out from college, loan or to go to college. Loans while you're in college accrue interest. With a subsidized loan, the federal government pays off that interest. So you get a loan your freshman year, you don't have to start paying the interest back until six months after you graduate. If that loan is unsubsidized, interest starts accruing from your first semester freshman year and adds up um, when you graduate. So by the time you graduate, that loan you took out freshman year will have already increased by 4.5% or whatever the current rate is. Right now, there are income-driven student loan plans because students have had to take out such enormous loans to pay for school that says, okay, if you only make $40,000 a year, you only have to pay 10% of that back per year Um, as opposed to what the traditional payment would be. So for someone who has $30,000 in student loans, that would cut what they're paying, I think, by a third to almost a half. Um, And public service loan forgiveness programs would end. So currently, if you work in public service for uh, 10 years and you make payments on time for 10 consecutive years or 100 months, or not 100 months, 120 months, Mm -hmm. Get your the, right. <laughs> <laughs> the remainder of that loan would be forgiven. So that would end. So no matter how much you work in the public service, um, you would end up paying back all of your loans. Um, right, so basically what you're saying is that if I am financially unable to afford college, I will not be able to go to college because these opportunities, these loan opportunities that are provided to support like low income mm-hmm. students, adults or you know young adults um, would be dismantled. Mm-hmm. So if you can afford it, then you can go and if you can't afford it, then you can't go. And also or if you, you can go and then have a even you'll larger have an even larger loan yeah, that's right. And then um, but I have to go in order to make a living wage. And so this is where our conversation starts to yeah. get back to Roberta's point about, ESSA, or every, the Elementary Secondary Education Act, was put in place to equalize opportunity. And so what you're seeing is that these cuts and these rollbacks are going to have disproportionate impacts. And so the last thing we want to talk about real quick before we get into ESSA is that an internal memo um, has been found and published which shows that the DeVos administration is going to roll back civil rights protections. So under the Obama administration, there was an increased call for investigations um, 
into civil rights violations within schools related to discipline, related to sexual assaults on college campuses. Um, that's no longer going to be the case. They're going to diminish the amount of cases that they will hear. And a spokeswoman for um, the Department of Education says this plan is to make sure every individual complaint gets the care and attention that it deserves. Um, so regional offices will no longer be required to alert department officials in Washington of highly sensitive complaints on issues such as disproportionate disciplining of minority students, mishandling of sexual assaults on college campuses, and more. And so... This came out during the hearings, too, right? I think that people were asking um, DeVos whether or not she would enforce the uh, the Title, title Six, right? Or Title Nine? No. Title Nine. Title Nine. Yeah, the Title Nine provisions for civil rights in situations like sexual assault on college campuses or civil rights violations in schools. And she was very um, noncommittal on whether or not she would follow through. I think she just said, sort of like, oh, we'll review the policy. Yeah. Mm. And it seems like they've reviewed the policy and have decided, yeah. nah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think to a, a quote from someone who's in support of these rollback. Um, cites that there's quote-unquote over-involvement of the government in cases of sexual assaults and the lack of due process in those cases. So if you don't know much about sexual assault on campuses, there's a a powerful documentary called The Hunting Ground um, where it explores these at different college campuses. But what has happened is many of these cases have gone underreported or under-investigated because it doesn't look good for a university to say that sexual assault happens on their campus and these um, oftentimes women are shamed from withholding that. And so what this gentleman is citing is that there's not due process, not for the victims, but for the perpetrators, that if someone is accused of sexual assault, there is not enough of a defense Um, for that person. And you may remember the Stanford case that happened, I think that was a year, a year and a half ago. These are the kind of cases that the department... That's the one where the the boy raped the the girl who was drunk. Mm -hmm. uh, By the trash can. By the trash can, Mm -hmm. and and nothing happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So this, this is the kind of stuff that the Department of Education is starting to remove itself from being involved with. And so I I don't think that really matters a political leaning, but that's something that, given the context of all these other budget cuts, why the pullback? Um, And then just the last thing on this section is, so as of right now, this means that 40 positions um, in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Education will be cut because they will not need that many workers to service uh, civil Mm -hmm. rights cases because they will not hear as many. So, so good to know. The last uh, part, yeah, the last part of this podcast is hopefully <clears throat> to tie this all together and bring this kind of immediacy to what does this mean for schools? What mm-hmm. does this mean for districts? What does this mean for states? Um, so, ESSA is tied to federal government funding, which we have said is already being cut. Now you have, and we're, I should say, we're going to take New York's ESSA plan to kind of break down what this means because that's where we are and that's what makes the most sense to do. And in the New York plan, they talk about requiring $1.6 billion um, from the federal government to support the work that they are going to do in line with ESSA. So now you may be saying to yourself, well, you've just talked about all these budget cuts. Where's the money going to come from? And so this puts the states in the position where they have to negotiate with the federal government. So if there's an increase in uh, appropriations for uh, school choice movements and for vouchers, states would seemingly have to negotiate with the federal government to enact policies and reviews that would align with that mission to secure that funding because that funding isn't going to necessarily come from Title I or Title VI as much anymore or other appropriations. Um, I'm talking about this in the abstract. Faith, I I know you have a little experience with this from your time in Colorado. Can you talk about what that relationship between the state and federal government looks like? Sure, sure. Um, I'm 
I'm just thinking about it like um, a chess game is what came to my mind. Because when we're talking about negotiation, I think about that as, oh, we're going to sit down at a table together. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a discussion. Sure, you know, maybe emails and maybe this or that. But we're having like this face-to-face discussion and we're saying, hey, you know that we can't get along with this amount of money. And you're going to, so let's talk back and forth about how we're going to make this happen. However, how I really saw it um, take place when I was working in Colorado um, in a local, well, at the state level, um, on air pollution control was that when the EPA would put something out, so they would say, um, I, I'd say like a hammer or something, right? And they'd say, all right, this is how it is now. This is what everyone needs to comply with. And now states, you need to enforce it. And, you know, we would get it and read it and, you know, start writing guidance and that kind of thing. But how it worked wasn't so much a, hey, you know that a dry cleaner in like Southwest Colorado cannot afford $1.2 million to update whatever it is they need to update to be able to be in compliance with this. Um, So let's negotiate this. It was more that um, we would say, okay, here's the guidance we're going to put out and we're not going to touch certain areas because we can't ask. I mean, our people are going to go out of business if that has to happen. Mm -hmm. We're going to give them guidance to do these things to like reduce their emissions in this area. And then we would do that and basically wait. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll see what happens. If the EPA is going to now read our stuff and then they may come back to us and say, you're not going to be in compliance and we're going to come after you about it. Um, And that's how it worked. And then as... um, as politics go and it would it would change over at election time then maybe that would go away anyway and we would mm-hmm. never really have to deal with it etc et so i mean what it sounds like is I, i'm gonna say negotiations because i can't think of another yes, word yes. To, to put in there but it almost creates instability yes it creates that we're gonna make the changes that we can but we can't make them all so we're hopefully not gonna get caught by it but we might get caught by it but then the politics might change and so i mean that seems a little unsteady uh, to me, I guess. Sure, and why, well, it was definitely unsteady for stakeholders and yeah. um, unsteady for business owners who are, are uh, um, part of that group of stakeholders. Um, and and I would say, like, I worked with a really great bunch of people, and mm-hmm. this group of people were looking at, you know, they cared about Colorado and they cared about air quality, so they were looking at it as how can we preserve air quality. It mm. wasn't like a... Um, screw you to the feds, we're not going to do that situation. We wanted to, but we also had to look at our communities and mm-hmm. how can our communities continue to work and, you know, um, provide for their families and be a part of the community and and had to, like, negotiate that and figure that out. Well, and I think also what you're saying is it puts more onus on the states to yes. compromise than it does the federal government. And so I think that leads more to, okay, when I'm looking at my state's ESSA plan, Mm -hmm. what lines up with the Trump-DeVos vision Mm -hmm. um, for education? So one thing I want to put um, out there as an idea is that under ESSA, states have to set long-term goals. And so one of the main goals that New York State has set is that 95% of its students will graduate from high school in four years, Mm -hmm. 96 in five years, 97 by six years, And they're going to achieve this starting in the 2021-2022 school year. Currently, those numbers are 82, 85, and 86. So now, the state already has a plan for schools that aren't meeting these goals to intervene Mm -hmm. in them. It would seem that if you're compromising with the federal government to get that funding, and a lot of that funding is tied to grants and quote-unquote, like, innovation and research projects for more school choice, that those schools that fail to meet those metrics are more likely to go the way of a charter or other some other kind of privatization. Uh, Roberta, is that right? Am I maybe reading that wrong? I mean, in the past... Um schools that don't meet up the meet the expectations are less likely to be converted and more mm. likely to be closed or taken over mm. um, control. Right now New York State has in place a process of uh, what they call receivership. So um, schools that are underperforming for a certain period of time, first they become identified as a focus school for uh, increased accountability and sort of awareness at the district, uh, city, and state level. Um, they, if they continue to uh, decline or they continue to not make gains, then they become a priority school. Um, once schools are in a priority situation for a certain period of time, like 
two or three years, um, then and they still are not making gains, um, then they would go into what's called receivership. Um, that's when the superintendent of the district that the school is in takes on a more um, a hands-on management approach to the school. So the principal has is still managing the school, but um, must defer to the mm -hmm. superintendent in terms of decision for hiring and curriculum and professional development and those sort of major things, all of those sort of leadership decisions. Um, the, the superintendent basically receives the school and receives a responsibility for the school. And if the superintendent can't get the school to turn around within a short period of time, I think they've got some schools have one year, some schools have two, um, then the state actually threatens to take over the management of the single school as opposed to keep, uh, so basically saying, like, if the, if the district can't get it in check and the city can't get it in check, then move out of the way and we will do it. Now, um, the relationship between New York City and New York State is um, mm -hmm. a precarious negotiation mm -hmm. on, all, on all matters, uh, and I have never seen a situation where the state actually does take over receivership mm -hmm. from a New York City school, because New York City schools are much likely to close. They'll just close it down before yeah. they allow the state to take over control. So it's, it, our history has been that they try for many years to try to get a school community to reform, mm -hmm. and when they can't, they will close it down. Now, the more schools that you have closing, mm. the more space you have and the more opportunities there are for new charter schools uh, or private schools to come in. And so one of the major political challenges right now is it's New York City, so it's around space. Mm -hmm. And it's that um, public schools also house charter schools. Mm -hmm. And so many public schools who are struggling find themselves getting pushed out of their buildings by brand-new charter schools who have... Mm -hmm who are sort of flush with cash and don't have the same kinds of roles or responsibilities or accountability placed on them that the public school would have. Well, and I think New York City is um, maybe not the best example for the rest of the country or even the rest of the state, but I do think it is a lesson where you see this already happening. And like you said, schools that are, or charter schools that are coming in with cash to be able to take these places, if that's where the federal appropriations are, that seems likely to happen even if it's not mm -hmm. in New York City. So to try to put these different points that we've talked about together, you can see how the federal government through ESSA is still able to coerce, um, manipulate, uh, dictate what's happening at state-level policy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to move toward the Trump-DeVos agenda. Um, yeah, so... We, 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 okay. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a lot. There's a lot to unpack. Yeah. And, and I think the thing that is challenging is that it's not one thing, right? We're not just talking about um, a federal mandate around school evaluation, because mm -hmm. as soon as we get into that, we're, we're talking about um, social justice. We're mm -hmm. talking about a history of, right. uh, uh, of segregation and separation. We're talking about, you know, un inequality and then we get so uh, then you're talking about budgets and so every single topic here is connected to 15 other topics right. mm -hmm. that are all like very um important and also very emotionally charged and that you can yeah. spend you know they're just it's like we're going through we're going along and they're just lots, lots of rabbit holes that that we could sort of get get sucked down into and i think it's it the thing that's interesting for for me and i think for some of our listeners um, who are finding themselves in the situation to go, to, who, are, who are part of that stakeholders who yeah. are feeling somewhat uneasy now, right? And thinking about yeah. uh, some of the reasons that I know some of this information is because I was starting to feel uneasy about like, where are we going? And how are we starting a school year without a, a state plan around things, important things like school accountability yeah. and school funding? And mm -hmm. all of those things are about um, security and understanding sort of like what is the system in which we're working in? And all of that has been up in the air for, I mean, almost two years now since the um, beginning of ESSA came, you know, in 2015. And then we gave, you know, the federal government spent a year trying to figure out what the, the what the new law meant. And now we're spending the last year sort of writing these state plans that they're not going to uh -huh. even be in place until September yeah. when they're supposed to be live. And so then, like, understanding what the plan is and how it's going to be connected with, you know, a potential, you know, budget shortfall uh -huh. of, you know, almost 5% of, of the budget and, and billions of dollars in our that are required for our neediest areas. It's very 
unsettling. Yeah. Well, I, I want to jump on two things that you said there. So one probably should have said beforehand. So states had, I think it was like till April 3rd to submit their plans for 2017, 2018 with a one month extension. Um, that was provided to states by May 3rd or a September 18th deadline. So the beginning of the school year to come up with the plan for your state Mm -hmm. for that school year. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was like 12 or 13 states have proposed their plans um, to the federal government, Mm -hmm. have not heard back feedback on that yet, but if you're interested, you can look at those state plans. New York State is aiming for September 18th. And one thing you had mentioned, Roberta, is the only reason you found out this information is because you were interested in looking at it. And so this is maybe a sidestep from the conversation that we've been having. But if I'm like a teacher, I'm a parent, I'm an educator, I'm thinking you're talking about all this stuff possibly happening to my school. Where where do I learn about what's going on? What's that process? You didn't hear about it? You know, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I'm shocked to, to, to find out that you didn't hear about it because, um, they, it was widely reported that there were going to be these public hearings. <laughs> I mean, it was reported, I, I have the newspaper, the news sites up here right now on June 7th, it was reported on the 74, uh, WAMC reported it, WRBO public media reported it, uh, WXXI news, the Gotham Gazette reported it. You, you didn't hear? You don't. You don't. You don't know those. Yeah. You don't. You don't know those call letters to all of those uh, big time news. No, I, I'm somebody's I, listening and they're like, "I do," because hey. that's how you get your information. All right. The Waterton Daily Times reported it on May thirty first. Matt, you don't get that. I, I, my point here. My point here is that yes, New York State did release a public statement on May second releasing that they were releasing their draft of their ESSA Mm -hmm. plan. It has been, uh, you know, in the works for about a year. A year ago, around this time, Mm -hmm. I checked in on the website, and it said, we are developing the plan, and we'll get back to you. (laughs) So now the plan has been released. They held 13 public hearings across the state um, within about a month's time span. Um, But the, the the news sites that I just you know, rattled off here are the only news sites that were reporting on those public mm-hmm. hearings. Um, as a parent, I'm a parent in New York City school systems. I visit between four to six schools a week. Mm-hmm. I am, you know, housed here at Teachers College, uh, one of the the oldest and uh, leading um, institutions for education policy mm-hmm. uh, in yeah. the United States. And I was not in and I did not hear about it the only reason that I know is because I as a stakeholder yeah I became unsettled and concerned about like what's happening for next year and how mm-hmm. are schools going to yeah. start receiving yeah. their funding and I went and, and poked around now in in fairness um, there was a, a link in a very short little piece in the monthly newsletter uh, mm. that was mailed out on May 10th um, one day before the hearings began around the state, the monthly newsletter from from the state um, mm-hmm. from the state uh, education commissioner, um, and there, so there was a, a comment in it there. Um, but beyond that, it was not widely reported. I'd be curious to hear what their numbers were. Mm-hmm. And looking for information about what the public comments were, I haven't been able to to really see those. So it, I I think we talked a little bit um, that it can be hard to get the word out. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that it's that hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I would think yeah. that like many people would be interested in knowing what our state plan is going to be. And I think that, you know, in to, to sort of believe the best about our, uh, our state lawmakers who I yeah. believe are very passionate mm-hmm. about uh, a quality education for New York students. Um, there's a lot going on and there's a lot to do and there's a lot to figure out. And the parts of the state plan that I've seen are very respectful and responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then in fact, our, are a really interesting contrast to mm-hmm. the, the sort of federal values that we see at play. Um, but it, it would be nice to know and it would be nice to be involved in the, in, in, in the conversation. I mean, it seems to me two things. One, that it, it would be really important. I, I agree when you look at the document, how um, it seems thoughtful and, and certainly like as a stakeholder, um, 
easy, easy to read, to understand. I feel like somebody put some effort into this to not just like restate anything about mm-hmm. a policy, which has been really wonderful. It also seems to me that we need to care about it at, as much as we care about like getting tickets to Hamilton. I'm going to yes. set my alarm every morning at 10 a.m. so that I can put, you know, send my email. Maybe I need to be setting an alarm and doing a search mm-hmm. to see like, you know, where... Or we should all just start subscribing to the Utica Observer Dispatch, which seems to have all go. the information <laughs> on the state level. Well, and I, but I, th- I think this is something that you were getting to, Roberta. I think it's important to remember, it, you don't have to jump to the conclusion and say that state policymakers are being malicious and trying right. to do no, this process right. in the cover of night, but it's not necessarily something that is at the forefront of policy. I mean, people like to get up in arms about school policy when something's brought up, and then it creates this back and forth, which there's not the investment Mm -hmm. um, politically. It's like city bike, right? We're going to be very, very, very upset when they take all the parking away to put in the city bike things, and we're going to say, like, I never knew! And the city's going to say, well, we had, like, three meetings in your neighborhood about it, and you didn't show up, right? Like, that's people get upset when they see when they when the impact of the policy yes affects yes. them not when the policy because we can't see that far we're, we're you know it's very hard to be that um, that invested you know mm-hmm. the summary of the state plan is mm-hmm. 65 pages long <laughs> right it's hard to find the time and find the will if you even have access to the information that the information is there and I think that it's that kind of big bureaucracy and it you know while um i don't i don't think that it's malicious uh, i certainly hope it isn't um but it certainly is easier for the state if there's few if there is less resistance if they are able to say hey we had these open hearings you guys didn't say much we push it through i'm sorry you don't like it or hey this was part of our plan we can't really fund it yet so we can't enact Mm -hmm. it sorry we had you know we had the best intentions it's just it's not um it's not giving me the settled feeling that I was hoping to <laughs> yeah, have, right? Yeah. It's still unsettling. Yeah, and I think for someone like me, I would like to go to these public hearings not even necessarily to make a, a policy pitch because maybe, like, I don't feel comfortable doing that, but asking questions saying, hey, like, I know this is what's happening at the federal level. You're talking about $1.6 How is that shaping policy mm-hmm. and how is that being changed? Because... That's something that policymakers maybe do want to avoid that conversation because it is so wonky and it's not yeah. something that fits in. But it's a really important uh, thing to think about because if the education go or education policy goes the way by the Trump DeVos agenda, there are going to be a lot of cuts and a lot of services that are going to affect you and people close to you. If yeah. you have a student that receives um, special services, maybe speech therapy or um, school provided uh, EpiPens or something, yeah. right? Like that funding's being cut and, and that affects you. And it's not something that you think about on your day to day, but if you're having an allergic reaction and the school doesn't have an up-to-date EpiPen, you're going to feel it then, you know? Yeah. And so I, I, I don't know. I think to echo Roberto's point, I think being aware and seeking out this information to be part of the conversation because it's not going to happen the reverse. Yeah. So the public comment officially closed on June 16th, but I say if you read that 64-page summary or the 154-page plan and you have a comment, you can go ahead and uh, let's let me find the email address here. We'll have it uh, in the show notes. Yeah, we'll have it in the show notes, but yeah. ESSA yeah. at schools.nyc.gov is a great place to uh, communicate uh, to New York City. And um, there's also uh, a state website that you can, uh, a state email address that you can ask. And I say, like, let's go ahead and just keep giving your comments anyway. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, Matt, you made a really good point about um, that it doesn't necessarily mean that at a meeting or in the comments that it's all about, like, um, resist to this thing. But, like, we make comments, very positive comments, sitting around this table looking mm-hmm. at this document. And I just think there are people there that are doing this work that mm-hmm. are passionate that and and it's it's hard work. It's it's a hard job to do. And I just think give them when you see things that you say, like I'm just gonna read something, added practices to foster lifelong readers and writers to ensure that students become lifelong learners who can communicate effectively. Great. I'm so glad you added this. Here's why. Thank you. This mm-hmm. represents mm-hmm. my child. Yeah. This represents my community. Um, those comments as well, I think, to yeah. help further the things that we see that are that are good for our community. 
So, we've had a wide-ranging discussion with sometimes voice levels increasing in decibels, <laughs> some moments oh. of silence and reflection. Um, to wrap things up, are there final thoughts you all would like to share? Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think that for me it just keeps going back to something that I think I probably said before, which is just that like we need to know and understand the systems that are evaluating us. Mm-hmm. The policies matter. They, mm-hmm. they impact everybody. Uh, and we need to try to imagine what it will look like when it's implemented and we need to hold our lawmakers um, accountable and also use our own voices so that we can communicate with them what our values are, um, especially when it comes to education. The choices that we make today are not about today, they're mm-hmm. about the next 20 yeah. years, they're about a generation of children that we need to educate so that we can continue to to live and have a country and to continue to be, to be prosperous and um, so we need to take it seriously and make an investment in understanding um, what 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 the plan is, um, and hopefully hold people accountable when what they say doesn't match up with their actions. Yeah, and be part of that. Be part of the community that um, hold, holds people accountable, including one another. Yeah. Did you go to the meeting? Yeah. You know, oh my gosh, I had to do this, that, or the other. You know, are we are we also asking of ourselves to give to our community, whether we have children or not, whether or not mm-hmm. it's our kids that are going to be affected in a certain way, but it's our community. And I guess just picturing who who are those kids, who are those teachers, mm-hmm. and then and for us, it's it's um it's easy because we see them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't see them on all the time, I guess just look around your community and just think about it. it could be that kid, it could be that person who's a teacher that's going to be affected, and that it's really important to continue to be involved and um, educate yourself on on the system and what changes can be made. And I think to to build on that, you know, our our conversations here are typically aimed at educators and parents, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but when it comes to education policy, it's actually it's a much broader audience that's mm-hmm. impacted. And mm-hmm. even if you're not a parent or you're not an educator, you know, when you're sick at the hospital, mm-hmm. how much education do you want your doctor to have had? Mm-hmm. How much education do you want the person who's caring for your elderly parents, you know, in the nursing home to have? How much education do we want our future financiers to we have? All right? like we all vote. How much education do we want our, to have as voters, that's like, right. as our community around us? So, so we are reliant on the next generation to continue you uh the the good work that we've started at least we hope um and it's going to require an educated workforce in order for that to happen yeah i think the thing that like i think about we ended this conversation with essa and i think it's so important because idealistically the goal of essa is to improve academic achievement for all students for all to, students. to create pathways to college because we are entering a world where I believe it's in the next two to three decades, 40% of jobs are going to be lost due to automation. Yep. Mm-hmm. There, there's going to be a new workforce that needs to emerge and likely in human services field with advanced education. And so this policy is not just an educational policy, but a government policy and mm-hmm. the idea of sustaining the government and sustaining um, the economy. And right now what's being proposed is an agenda that cuts off that access for all students by cutting off subsidized funding for college education, by cutting funding at the K-12 level to uplift all students. And there's an incoherency between the aim and the, the means for, for what's being done. And I think it's very hard to suggest the correct policy, but at least advocating for something that doesn't do further damage or destruction or, or goes against that is a worthy cause. And so I think spreading the word and getting more in tune to this educational policy because it's economic policy, it's government policy, as Roberta said, for the next 20 to 40 years, the next generation. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I just think that's really important. All right. So <laughs> yet another is. uplifting <laughs> policy pod. <laughs> Well, thank you all for so much for joining us. And a lot of the um, stuff that we talked about today, we have resources for you that will be in the show notes so you can read it for yourself and not just take our word for it and, and draw your own conclusions. Um, and in the next couple of weeks, we're going to dig deeper into these plans and the summary of the plan. And CPET will put out um, l- a less than 64-page summary. So for those of you who are interested in knowing what are the uh, what are the, some of the details in the state's 
plan, mm -hmm. um, we'll go ahead and do some of that uh, deep reading and try to synthesize it in a way that's that's pretty palpable and easy to understand regardless of your uh, involvement in education. And once that's all up, we'll definitely let you know on the pod. So you got to keep listening. All right. Keep listening. <laughs> to find out. Keep listening. Um, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.